to No Room for Phonies, episode 16, The Impact of History. And I have with me today two special guests, Zach Voth and Wendy Ward back. Both of them are back, returning guests. Yay! And we have each independently picked 10 events in history that we feel to us are very impactful. And now we're going to go through our list in order from 362 BC all the way to the year 2020. So we're going to talk about our um, moments in history that we have decided are the most important to us. Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. And it looks like I have the first three. <laughs> you do. 362 BC, Zach. What happened there? I tried to I tried to spread them out. So I ended up with a couple a couple two thousand years ago. Uh, so the very, very first one that I picked, um, which was something I had to read a little bit of in uh, in Econ 101, was in 363 BC or thereabouts. Xenophon wrote Economicus, which laid out economic principles like the division of labor, which would become pretty important to um, economies from then on. Now, interestingly enough, he didn't really write about the division of labor in the context of like a market economy like we think of today, but more of in a sort of household focused um, way. But nonetheless, these ideas would sort of get picked up again during the Renaissance and, uh, and sort of be put into uh, economic theory uh, that would become influential later on. Zach, I have a question for you. Yes. In his treatise Economicus, does he, um, when you talk about labor, does he put a value on certain labor over, than an, over another? Um, no, but I'm trying to remember um, more, more of the specifics there. It's, it's more, like, it's not really like a market, like labor value, like there won't, it doesn't directly translate to my, my prefer, preferred economic charts. Um, there's also the blind, the, the fact that they would um, have just sort of considered slave labor to be a part of, uh, <laughs> um, uh, a part for the course there. Um, a bit problematic there. Um, so the birth of the of economic theory. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a that's a date some folks put on that one. Um, yeah, and you have the next one too, one sixty three. One, yeah, uh, 163 BC, um, when Emperor Wen of the Han Dynasty introduced the first civil service examinations, creating a merit-based public service for the first time, uh, as opposed to administrators based on hereditary families or guilds or what have you. Um, but just uh, the first thing of what we would look at as being a modern um, sort of government uh, as it were, uh, stemming from there. So uh, that led to uh, sort of the centralization of uh, a lot of systems of technology and it really led the development of China and technology that would of course make its way over 
in the Silk Road and other means to uh, the rest of the world. That's pretty cool. So the birth of the public servant. Yeah, and, and if you look, there's these, uh, they had to take the exams in these stalls to prevent cheating. So it's just a bench and like walls on each side. It looks kind of like a stable. <laughs> um, Maybe we need to be incorporating that into our current online invigulation. <laughs> yeah, maybe. maybe. Uh, all right, so then 570, Zach, is also you. Yeah, so um, that 570 AD was the birth of the Prophet Muhammad. Oh, and, that's uh, cool. Yeah, so uh, creator of the Prophet of the Religion of Islam, which is uh, currently... Uh, currently Ramadan and uh, but in addition to being a religious movement uh, Islam is also a political movement from fairly early on in the development uh, of the religion uh, leading to the unification of that part of the world um, which then a few hundred short years later became sort of the center of learning and technological development for hundreds of years during the Islamic golden age um, and in fact, when talking about the Renaissance and Xenophon's work being discovered, a lot of the rediscovery of these Renaissance ideals, they were bringing copies that had been uh, held in the, uh, in the Arab world and in, in, in Islamic cities and in those empires because they'd held on to all this stuff and developed it further, developed the uh, Arabic numbers for one thing, but uh, like all of these sort of old Greek and other pieces of writing had been kept, um, hadn't really been kept around in Europe. So they had to make their way back over from, uh, from these Islamic empires, which, uh, which of course going back to 570, uh, kind of an important turning point. <laughs> I think many would agree. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that for sure. All right, Wendy, 975 to 1025. So somewhere in there, Beowulf is produced. And Beowulf, to me, in terms of literature, is really important. First, it's a, a non-faith-based script. And it's the writing down of story that is passed on traditionally in an oral setting. So I think it it was really key in terms of recording that kind of history or that kind of story. Yeah, and I mean, I think now when we talk about even um, marketing plans and things like that, we now we use, we have reverted to using story as a way to attract people to our businesses and make things more meaningful for people. So kind of a full circle about just the impact of the story, right? Definitely. Yeah. I love the sort of transition from, because uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Beowulf would have started a lot of the uh, stories as like an oral tradition and then had been recorded. Yes. Um, which is so interesting because I mean now privileging the written traditions, but there's still many oral traditions that are passed on and, and various well, and I uh, often, I often feel badly that I didn't write down more of the oral stories that were shared by my grandparents and things because 
they were interesting stories and they're kind of lost, right? All that. But that's part of the fabric of, of our lives, if you will. And it's, it's part of every generation. Um, you know, something's kept and something yeah. born and something is continued. Yeah, something added. I mean, I was reading the Moore book, and I don't know if when the last time you read it uh, was, Mom, but the the one who had been our great six times great uncle of mine said that he would well, he was at the Battle of Queenston Heights in the Upper Canada Militia, but he said that he personally both told General Brock to not go that way because they would have him and his men would get shot, which happened, and then also said that he helped. Laura Secord rescue her husband after he got shot. So the same guy in both of these, I mean, like unlike battles today, there's only like about 2000 people in this battle, but that still seems a little bit like. Yeah, a little, a little exaggeration maybe. If, if that sort of, if at the bar it sort of turned into uh, watching him ride by. Yeah. Warning him. <laughs> yeah. Or seeing and That's or funny. To, to helping. Uh, but yeah, but it is, it is really interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. Okay, 12.15, Zach. Um, well, that's classic, uh, another thing from university days. That's the, sign, the uh, signing of the Magna Carta by King John, which is sort of the first agreed upon uh, charter of rights. I mean, just for nobles. <laughs> But it's uh, sort of the first limit on the divine right of kings that had characterized how people organized themselves politically at that time. Um, it's that the it's based on uh, sort of compact with people, some people, not all the people, uh, just the landowning people. Um, but uh, it, it's quite a step up from God made me the king, so do what I say. Or I am king on earth sort of thing. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right, 1440, Wendy. Come on, the Gutenberg printing press. Oh, yeah. I didn't put that, but I was like, somebody's going to. When I posted the, um, the little gif on about this happening, someone put under underneath it as a comment the printing press so well I mean when you think about it because my understanding because like Zach I did some research because I know there's a test <laughs> I know that there's a test at the end of this it went from only hand copying things out to being able to produce 1300 pages a day like that whole movable type and the impressions truly outstanding in terms of what it did for bringing the word to people. Wow. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. All right, you two and five, fifteen, seventeen. Are you like? Is Let's it say it together. Three, what? One, two, three. Yep. One, two, three. Martin, Martin Luther. Luther. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Yes. Nailing the ninety-five theses theses to the door on the question of indulgence in Wittenberg. And just the whole reality of, I don't have to talk to somebody else to get absolution. Right. Oh, which, 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 I don't know, which 20, in 2020, 
Um, which, which it only took, how many years is that? Right. 503 years later. For the, the Pope. <laughs> to <agrees>. say now. <laughs> it only took 500 years and coronavirus, but the Pope <laughs> agrees that you can seek absolution without a confession. It's great. There you go. That's funny. Okay, I finally get one now. Yay, and I decided that the invention of the microscope. Yes. Yay. Every major field of science has benefited by, from some form of a microscope. And it was a Dutch eyeglass maker named Zacharias Johnson. Oh, is that why you named Zachary Zachary? No, it isn't actually. Um, however, he, Jansen was the son of a, an, a spectacle maker named Hans, and they thought maybe he actually, the father was more of the inventor, but the son got credit. And basically at that time, the eyeglasses were beginning to be used widely. And so there was a lot of attention focused on lenses and optics and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, so I thought that that was important and maybe the whole thing about the coronavirus and finding a bacteria and understanding it sort of brought it to mind because without a microscope, where would we be right now? Oh, pretty really? dead probably. So. Yeah. Anyway, that was my first one. The invention of the microscope was mine. Well, I think you deserve a round of applause for that one. No, no. It's the same as everybody else's. You're, you all have come up with good things. So, 1609, Zachary. Oh, this is a nice one, Mom. This is from the book on maps. Oh. I um, so, in 1609 was one of Samuel de Champlain's voyages to what would later be Canada. At upstate New York. Um, so in 1609, after wintering uh, in Quebec, he, unlike earlier explorers who were entirely contemptuous and shifty in their dealings with indigenous people, uh, Samuel de Champlain actually made an alliance uh, with the Algonquin and Huron-Wendat uh, people and joined them uh, in a grand trip from the Algonquin territory around Quebec and the Ottawa Valley down to present day Barrie, just, just on foot or in a boat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Can you imagine months. that though? Like on foot <laughs> or in a boat. <laughs> and then, uh, and then once there, um, they were in a massive total war with the Iroquois in upstate New York. So he joined their raid around Lake Ontario and, um, and helped them basically win a climactic battle that ended their war for 20 years, um, have, with the advantage of having uh, some firearms that were not, that had not been introduced yet um, in North America. So so a little, little positive and a little negative, um, but certainly that relationship is what made it possible to build, I mean, to survive, but also to build the networks of, um, of economic activity with the fur trade and everything that would lead to everything in Canada being 
eventually settle and turn in, and create it as a as a country. Can I cheat? Can I sure. add something? Because in 1620, that's when the first mission schools started in Canada, which I oh. found really fascinating because they're the precursors of the residential schools. Right. Yeah. So again, part of the reason was because of that opening in the maps that you're talking about, Zach. Sorry, that's my cheat. No, that's great because that leads you right into your very broad <laughs> 1625 to 1850. Well, nobody really covered this. Okay, so <laughs> during this time in the art world, realism was coming in and that was when people stopped painting the flat two-dimensional um, icons of only religious figures and started painting realistically. Originally, it was Mary and Jesus and, and biblical figures in a realistic manner, but then they started painting people, regular mm -hmm. people. So it, I, I couldn't choose just one year for that, but I thought it was a really major shift away from faith-based to realism. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, the starting of um, secularism, right? And as RuPaul would say, the realness. <laughs> right? Well, and this is Rubens and uh, Gobert and yeah. Yeah, cool. Nice. Yeah. Oh. Okay, 1712, Zachary. Okay, yes. Thomas Newcomen, not famous, developed the first commercially successful steam engine to pump water out of coal mines. There, that's a good one. The yeah, so, fracking. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Um, so it basically made coal more available, which made it more feasible to have more steam engines because they ran on coal and then it's sort of the, the the touch point that I'm using for the Industrial Revolution, which is just real important to our current talking to one another through a screen camera internet tube thing. Very so, cool. Yeah, he yeah he made that, and then and then Thomas Watt, who is uh, or James Watt, anyway, I think it's the guy's me. name was Watt, which he, much more famous because they named the unit of measurement of electric power after him um uh, developed a more a, a better one for other things and then trains and planes well and automobiles and stuff cool all right 1783 is mine and that is the loyalist refugees arriving after the american revolution ah. so united empire loyalists of which I am one through my family, right? And um, anyway, they settled primarily in Nova Scotia and the lower Canada province of Quebec and Montreal. And there was a significant loyalist resettlement around the Bay of Bundy. So um, Upper Canada, right, which is Ontario, the Crown gave them land grants of one lot, contains 200 acres wow. per person to encourage their resettlement as it especially wanted to develop Upper Canada. And the resettlement added many English speakers to the Canadian population. 
and it was the beginning of new waves of immigration that really established the English-speaking population in both the west and east of Canada. So, mm -hmm. United Empire Loyalists was my moment in history. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I think there are obviously lots of problems with that because obviously they were giving away land that belonged to people who had owned, you know, had first rights to the land, obviously. But anyway, I think, I do think it's a significant point in history. And then um, 1841, which is the next one, was when the School Act for the United Provinces of Upper Canada was passed. Wow. Which created non-denominational public schools for Upper Canada that were not oriented toward a particular religion. They were publicly funded um, Protestant, yeah, they were, so the Common School Act of 1841 created for the first time a central administrative authority. Um, and that's when they created like chief superintendent of education, an officer appointed by the governor to oversee elementary education in the colonies. Is that elected trustees yet or not, or not yet? No, the, no, this, while well, he was appointed, he would have, he, I'm sure he was a he, would have been appointed by the governor. Mm -hmm. But I thought that oh. that was interesting because yeah. like that's the beginning of the Common School Act of 1841. I, d I didn't even know anything about it. I was just looking through whatever. So that I thought was an important moment in history. Zachary, specifically August 5th, 1858. Uh, that is when they landed the first transatlantic telegraph cable between <laughs> Ireland and Newfoundland. Oh. So, which then failed like five months later because the dudes on either end of it couldn't uh, figure out how they wanted to use it. Uh, one of them wanted to do low frequencies um, very quickly and the other one wanted to do high frequencies very slowly. So they ended up, and the only way they could communicate, of course, was through the cable that they couldn't decide how to communicate through. So they ended up um, burning it out. But then they made another one, and then they made another one, and another one, and another one. And now the entire world is crisscrossed by fiber optic cables. Um, really astounding. It which is. Which carry everything. They run the world. Yeah. Cables. Yeah. Under, yeah. No, under it's true stream. because you think, well, we were talking about this in the last one that we did about um, history when we talked about, you know, how long it took to get information from, you know, your cousin could be dead for a year before you actually got a letter by boat that said they were, and now information is instantaneous, right? Yep. Although if a boat in the Gulf of Oman drops an anchor on the cable, <laughs> the internet goes out. It's, it's happened. <laughs> all the time. All right, Wendy, it 18. The Mediterranean all the time. Wendy, 1867. I don't oh, know, Pam. We lost. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know. What, what do you think it could be? 1867? I have no idea. I don't know things. Zachary knows. His hands yeah. are up. His thumbs are up. Zach knows. I know What is it, Zach? It is the Confederation of the Province oh, of Canada, yes, of course. Brunswick and Nova Scotia. 
is the British North America Act. And actually I chose it not so much because it was the start of Canada, but because it was one of the first times that a federal government had been given such blanket dominion and control over indigenous people. And um, startling in many ways. And I think it was sort of the colonization, colonial attitude that um, is, has been perpetuated in our history for a long time. And you'll see in some of my upcoming dates for the reference. 1883, 1884? <laughs> yes, yeah, so 83 to 85, really. Um, residential schools start 83, 84, and they move from day schools to boarding schools. Uh, overall, mm. trying to remember, there were something like uh, 3,000 deaths mm -hmm. of children in um, residential schools over the time period. But more importantly was the systematic destruction, like it was a policy of the government to eradicate indigenous culture. Um, and I find that striking and also of international significance when you think that South Africa came to Canada to figure out how to implement apartheid. Yeah. <laughs> Not something I'm really proud of, however. And then uh, 84, 85 is when Louis Riel does the articulation of grievances to the Canadian government, not dissimilar to Calvin putting the 95 tenants up, um, but it resulted in the Northwest Rebellion, which then resulted in Riel being convicted of being a traitor. Right, which is big time serious. Well, big time serious and, and big time misunderstood now. I mean, I can remember in grade six having to do a, a report on Louis Riel and how that history had changed from when my dad had taken it as history. And one of my first favorite graphic novels in Canada was the was Louis Riel by Chester Brown, which is still, I think, one of the best interpretations of what that whole time period was like. I mean, you guys know because of your history and family history from the Winnipeg area too. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's amazing, like, to 1867, the extent to which the Indigenous people were kind of an afterthought in the constitutional arrangement. Because, I mean, John A. Macdonald writing letters and stuff is really concerned about not having a civil war, which ended two years before in the U.S. Um, Francophone and English co uh, coexisting and the relationship with the empire. Those are the things like indigenous people are just kind of, well, 20 years later, I mean, they're embarking on this uh, on this program to assimilate completely assimilate into society and not and not as and not as equals either no well and we're still dealing with the repercussions of all of that 
today. Like, I mean, that yes. is not ever changed. And we are very fortunate because it doesn't directly impact our lives. No. But the number of people who it's still directly impacting. Yeah, it's huge. Anyway. Okay, so I'm going to flip to a little lighter topic <laughs> in history now. 1908 was when Anne of Green Gables was first published. <gasps> Yay! So I was a, and it's a registered trademark. And producers of Anne of Green, any Anne-related products outside of PA, PEI still pay a royalty to the family. Wow. So, so like Anne with an E, which I, I have not seen it. I've heard it's good, but terrible title. Oh, yeah. Monk uh, uh, herself, Maud Montgomery, insisted on being Maud without an E. And she got the <laughs> idea from an old journal. Isn't that funny, though? Um, she almost gave Maud up without an e. when the novel was rejected. Yeah, but she sold it sold 19,000 copies in its first five months. Although she didn't wow. want to write the Anne sequel. Which is a lot, because how many all. people even lived on Prince Edward Island? And, and a first edition Anne of Green Gables sold in New York, December 2009, for $37,500 US in a live auction. And the novel originally retailed for $1.50. <laughs> it so was one of my all-time favorite books when I was growing up. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. that was my, yeah. I just thought that was an important moment in literary history. Well, one of the, one of those times when Canadian culture distinct from American culture took a big step forward, which many, many since have tried to, yeah, tried to encourage uh, with, with sometimes limited, although there's some, there's some very popular Canadian content. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Americans love Kim's convenience. Yes, <laughs> yes. And Shit's That's Creek. Funny. Oh my god. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So okay. lightning strikes occasionally, but it's hard to make it make it strike. Okay. Oddly specific, Zachary. 19 February nineteenth, nineteen nineteen. So again, sort of marking a, a wider era with a specific date on this is an obscure one and it's more of a time when history took a turn might have uh, took a turn where it might have turned out very differently um, for various things. So on February 19th, 1919, Winston Churchill gave a speech at the Mansion House, which in St. Catharines is a nightclub, but in London is a fancy house for uh, members of parliament, um, uh, where he decried the foul baboonery of Bolshevism. And uh, this was one public expression of his private fight um, with the coalition, with the post-war coalition government to, um, well, he wasn't prime minister yet. Um, he was the first Lord of the Admiralty or something. Um, but at the time they were arguing, uh, behind the scenes about whether they should mount an invasion of, uh, the new Soviet Union, which at the time was two years old. Um, suffering from immense shortages, internal civil war. Well, it's not even really the so Soviet, uh, Soviet Union yet. It's, it's still in, in civil war. So the, their plan, which was not executed, was to have the, essentially the British Empire inv invade Russia 
end the uh, Soviet takeover uh, the, of the Bolsheviks and restore, if not the czar, then some other government, not communist, um, which would have drastically changed the history of Europe and the world if, if, if they had done it and if they'd been successful. Because, um, I mean, World War II, I mean, the partition of Poland between Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union was the catalyst that started that off. Um, how does that work if the Russian Empire is still in existence and counterbalancing Germany? Who knows? I mean, there's no real way to tell, but that is, um, but in the end, of course, um, they didn't, uh, obviously didn't do that. The... Uh, um, the civil war ended with uh, with the Bolsheviks in charge, and um, and then the, the UK and other countries uh, traded with uh, the Soviet Union, which let them sort of build up their industrial capacity and sort of um, fulfill Lenin's phrase: "The capitalists will sell you the rope to hang themselves with." Wow. Well, isn't that a pleasant thought? Again, I'm going to move to a lighter moment in history, 1920, with the formation of the Group of Seven. 100 years ago! Canadian landscape painters, uh, seven members, Franklin Carmichael, Lauren Harris, A.Y. Jackson, Frank Johnston, Arthur Lismer, J.E.H. McDonald, and Frederick Barley, Tom Thompson was never a member of the group uh, before the, because he died in Northern Ontario and Emily Carr was closely affiliated with the group and they were funded by Tom Thompson. No, who were they funded by? Harris. Anyway, I thought that I love their work. Yes. And, um, yeah, they were funded by Harris, who was the heir to the Massey Harris fortune, and Dr. James McCallum. Is it bad that I like their urban paintings, like in 1919, better than the nature stuff? <laughs> yeah, but anyway, it was they. The group became known as pioneers to new Canadian art, and they were portraying landscapes. So I thought they they were cool. And then my next one was 1928 when Canada's Olympic team included women for the first time. Oh, there you go. Seven Canadian women participated in the 1928 Amsterdam Olympics, one swimmer and six sprinters who were dubbed the matchless six. They were Bobby Rosenfeld, Jean Thompson, Ethel Smith, Myrtle Cook, Ethel Catherwood, and Florence Bell. Ethel Catherwood won a gold medal in the high jump. Cool. <laughs> Amazing. I had no idea. I know. Isn't that something? Wow. I thought that that was pretty cool. So anyway, that was my big moment in history. Okay, so, so high jump. So from high jumps to high jinks, um, 1936 was the abdication of Edward VIII. And oh. I thought that was fairly important given we know now about his Nazi leanings. Yeah. Um, really, his abdication had major impact on England's entry into the war. 
on the outcome of World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that is a big one for sure. And it's I sort think. of like the end of the illusion of perfection. Everything had been going so smoothly. Yes, I would agree with that. They've never really recovered from that completely. And then they've had tragedy after tragedy, it seems, since then, right? Like Diana was a, Diana was, you know, that marriage was supposed to save everything. And now William and Catherine are the next whatever, but they are never, they're always dogged by a bit of, like, not things, things aren't going well all the time. Yes, unfortunately, I think that there's a lot, there are a lot of people who um, tear down anybody who is held up for whatever reason. Um, Well, people just are too concerned with, I don't know, well, seek first to understand, I guess, is the word, right? And we don't often do that, right? We just are critical and whatever. At least here, if you don't like their excellency, the governor general, you'll have a new one in four years. (laughs) Nineteen forty-seven is my next one, and it's the Canadian Museums Association was formed, (gasps) founded when delegates from thirteen museums gathered at the Musée de la Province de Quebec in nineteen forty-seven to lay the necessary groundwork that would bring together all stakeholders to establish a national network to speak on behalf of Canadian museums. Yes. I love nonprofit um, governance. They had tried for years and years to do it, but it came into being after World War II at a time of real determination for peace, values, and humanitarian beliefs. So I thought that was like without museums, where is our history even stored? And I mean, Zachary and I were really. Um, I, I was very overwhelmed by the, uh, the museum in Winnipeg, the Museum of Human Man- Rights. Human Rights, Human Rights oh. Museum, absolutely. And we also visited, uh, not in the National Council of Museums, but the Mennonite Heritage Archives um, yeah. on the other end of Winnipeg. Um, just boxes on boxes of effects and documents and things um, that really tell too many stories to read. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, just the fact that our history is archived, I thought felt important to me. And then I'm the next one too, the 1960, which really should have been 1962, but it doesn't really matter, is when universal health care, Medicare was born in Saskatchewan on July 1st, 1962. It was the first government-controlled, universal, comprehensive, single-payer medical insurance plan in North America. And it's always, like the article that I read, um, you know, talked about why it, the, the states have, has never been able to do it, right? So, and within 10 years, all of Canada was covered by a medical insurance system based on that plan and no serious politician would openly oppose it. Oh, no. Interesting, so, um, in, in Cuba, like here it's still a fee for service where doctors get paid for each procedure or test right. that's run. But in Cuba, doctors get flat rate, here's your salary because you're a doctor, um, and, and it doesn't matter how many tests. So it, 
It's an interesting version. Um, I don't think we've hit perfect. No, but I mean, we certainly are better off than we are in the States. Like, when... Think of my brothers who pay over $2,000 a month for health insurance with a $500 deductible. Well, that's what struck me. I'm like, I just looking at the, like there's a lot for budgeting and thing like breakdowns of how much the average family spends on X and I'm looking for one like Canadian young person. But then I see these ones in the States where it's like, oh uh, yeah, you'll spend about 30% of your income on health insurance. <laughs> um, oh, wow. And like to make a conservative argument for that, I mean, it, it really encourages people to work only for big companies that will pay for your health insurance, which sort of uh, is a big damper on entrepreneurship and sort mm -hmm. of, cause you, cause your main concern always has to be, how am I going to pay to not um, die? Yeah. yeah. Anyway, that struck me as very, a very important thing. And, and, you know, we are, as we look at what's happening now, and how could people survive right now without, like what's happening in the States is just, it, it, it's tragic. Not and just so, in the States, in Europe, in like. Yeah. So anyway, I thought that one was important. So 1970, Wendy. 1970? Yeah, that's you. Um, 1970 is the closing of the Brantford School, residential school. 1970. Oh, children, wow. Indigenous children were still being taken from their homes. From 1884 to 1970. That's yeah. Terrible. <laughs> and actually, the last residential school in Canada didn't close until 1996. Wow. Yeah. And that was in Saskatchewan. Yeah, there's some of the tragedy of our history, right? It is. I saw I saw one gentleman on Twitter. I wish I remembered his name, but he had, he was cooking with his frying pan and he said this was the frying pan that his grandmother used to hit the um, RCMP officer with when they tried to come for the children because they mm -hmm. hadn't signed them up like they were um, uh, supposed to. So she yeah. hit she hit the or the agent. Um, whoever um hit with the frying pan and then and then they didn't end up going and then he still has the pan and just uses it to cook with i thought that was really really uh that's that's very cool that's pretty tragic though so yeah. mine for 1980 is terry fox oh wow is he became tragic. part of our basically bedrock right um he's a role model and cancer research funded was funded as it never you know like it just brought everything to the forefront right because Absolutely. well i mean because i don't know if this is an american statistic but the peak year for cancer deaths was 1983 and it's been going down ever since right and i think that he should be basically you know it was because of what he did that that and I mean, look, I mean, schools, Terry Fox, every school in Canada has- Every school board has one. <laughs> you know, as a Terry Fox walk, I mean, or run or whatever, like it's mm -hmm. just, 
So I don't know. I thought that that was an important piece of our history. He's so 19. What's that? Sorry, he received a posthumous order yes. of Canada. Yes. Yeah. Okay. He did. Yeah. I've waited uh, for nine, many of, of a bus in Terry Fox Station in Ottawa. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And there's Terry Fox schools and Terry oh. Fox everything. Anyway, mm -hmm. I just thought he was important to mention. 1990. That is the year that Nelson Mandela was released by F.W. de Klerk. Um, which I think is a major human rights celebration, uh, starting of the change in many national governments, uh, recognizing that government-sanctioned um, government-sanctioned oh abuse of minorities cannot take place. Right. And then you also have 1996. That would be the last residential school closing. Uh, okay. Yeah. And unbelievable, eh? From 1884 to 1996. I thought it was important to note that we have over a yeah. hundred years of well, and the fact is that residential schools have only really been become part of the curriculum for students to learn about in the past little while. Yes. Like, yeah, really. I don't think I, maybe in grade eight. Yeah, but I'm just saying, like that whole movement to educate kids about it was only in the past little while. Yeah. And then it I would even say last 10 years. Yes, really? absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. I think I, yeah, I only had it in grade eight, which was with a new, a, uh, a teacher who was just starting right. full time, like rather than, yeah. And that's okay. really, it's so, important. it's so important to educate. Hearings, um, and yeah. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, Zachary, the very specific December 11th, 2001. Yeah, December 11th, so trying to go a little obscure so I did not pick September 11, 2001 to pick December 11, 2001 because December 11, 2001 is also the source of many troubles um, that we're going to have to deal with. So on December 11, 2001, the People's Republic of China was admitted to the World Trade Organization. So the World Trade Organization sets a base level of tariffs and a, and a framework of rules for trade. Um, between countries that are supposed to be hearkening all the way back to my sort of butchering of, uh, of, <laughs> of uh, Xenophon. Um, uh, market economies were to work through the World Trade Organization to organize their, uh, their relationships with one another. So there were many concerns about admitting China because um, it was not clear and it's still not clear whether it was actually truly a market economy or driven by state-owned enterprises, centrally controlled um, with concerns about currency manipulation and various issues. Um, despite this, then as now, people uh, were interested in admitting China because it's a growing market of a, a, a middle class that's just 
um, expanding. And um, so in the end, uh, China was admitted to the World Trade Organization and, um, and that's led to an interesting 20 years of uh, uh, the sort of coming fully onto the world stage in 2008 with the, uh, with the Olympic Games and then um, a sort of what, what many, what people critic, often criticize as sort of a neo-colonial expansion of economic interests in Africa um, to taking control over the South China Sea to sort of consolidating control over Hong Kong to a more aggressive approach to international diplomacy um, that has sort of filled a void left by the United States uh, recently. All this while, I mean, we've seen reports of concentration camps in the Western regions for Uyghur Muslims and uh, just, and as well as espionage and uh, sort of corporate, um, corporate espionage, regular old espionage and then corporate espionage as well um, with, uh, I mean, Nortel uh, apparently had a whole bunch of its patents stolen uh, and reproduced very cheaply overseas at which time it had to fold and the Canadian telecom industry sort of came to a bit of a lower level. Um, Anyway, lots of examples, but without sort of being brought into what people refer to as the rules-based international order, um, which started with the UN in 1970-something and then WTO in 2001, um, the last 20 years would look a little different and the next 20 would as well. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So my 2003 is Canada saying no to joining the war in Iraq? Wow. That's the Jean Chrétien, um, because he, um, he just said that the move, well, it was said that the move asserted Canada's independence on the world stage. A lot of people thought of Canada as the 51st state, and it was clear that day that we were not. And he didn't believe that there were um, weapons of mass destruction, and that turned out to be true. So um, he kind of stunned the US, um, but I thought that was an important, I remember that happening. So that was pretty impactful on me that he would stand up and say, no, we're not doing that. Thank you very much. I'm not sure I remember properly, but I, I think that it was the result of um, an all party motion. Like, I don't think that it was that the liberals stood up and said, so let it be written. This is something that was come to by consensus with the, the other parties. Uh, I, I, I mean, it doesn't speak about that. I, I, it's just a, uh, an article that I read about it, and um, Chrétien said he refused to, to commit military action in Iraq without a resolution from the UN Security Council. And he just, and I, I, I kind of believe that it was pretty whatever across um, 
the board that people agreed with him and uh, I just I felt that that was just the alliance was in favor of joining the war in Iraq the alliance was yeah so you would know that but anyway I I um hindsight is 2020 ha yeah. it's 2020 it's 2020. <laughs> and now we're in 2020 Wendy Okay, so my 2020 is when I was doing a bit of research about residential schools, in June 2020, the Brantford Residential School is supposed to reopen. I'm sure that it's going to be delayed now, but it's going to be one of the, um, it's, it's a museum so that people can go and see what it was like to be at a residential school, though it's certainly going to be sanitized <laughs> but I thought that was really yeah. important to preserve that kind of history so that people can see back to what you were talking about about going to the Human Rights Museum and the value of history um, not just for podcasts. No no but I, I mean I think what I liked about the humanitarian the that museum was that you started at the bottom and you worked your way up and then when you got to the top floor it's like so what are you going to do so that history doesn't repeat itself what are you going what's your role in making the world a better place going to be and I always when I was a principal and I was leading Remembrance Day services I often talked about um extraordinary things done by ordinary people and i think that we lose that because we are very addicted in our culture to status and so therefore we forget um the extraordinary work of a lot of very ordinary people who aren't seeking out notoriety and status but who actually do make the world a, a better place yeah, I think and, we see that now on our front lines of um, mm -hmm. in hospitals and long-term care homes right now. Yeah, and I I also do think that people who are just plain ordinary following the rules and not endangering, uh -huh. like actually staying home and not doing the things that they shouldn't be doing, I think that that's been a really important part of this whole thing because I certainly see people breaking the rules all the time. And it's true. we went but for as a long bike as ride. Most I, I, I know, and as long as most people, but I, we went for a bike ride today. I'm telling you, you would never, you would never guess that there was a pandemic or emergency measures in place. Because I went people for a walk. Yeah around the canal like there what it was so crowded <laughs> I almost got mowed down but like and people like so you know I just think that we need to celebrate the or ordinariness of our lives and the difference that that makes and just living out your ordinary extraordinary life yeah. well that was very interesting yeah. all I want to say is that I am shocked beyond measure that there was only one overlapping event were you not you made up for it by adding the, um, the i was 16. really impressed yeah i thought that well, that's that was a big really one because because i mean it um 
like I was mentioning the the political and religious significance of Islam. I mean, Reformation is where that political influence of Christianity started. Because I mean, if you're a prince in Europe, do you want to listen to the Pope or do you want to listen to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, well, thank, thank you both for that walk through impactful moments in history. And uh, so I'm thanking today uh, Wendy and Zach for going through this little timeline of historical events. Uh, tune in to uh, No Room for Phonies. And we're hoping that the next episode is a wine and cheese and conversation by Zoom. That's what we're yes. doing for our next one. So as many people as want to come on Zoom and have wine and cheese and conversation, uh, that will be the June 1st um, episode of No Room for Phonies, wine and cheese and conversation. So um, yeah, so that is it for the impact of history. And uh, if you have, if you disagree with us, that is great. You can send through uh, Facebook or Instagram or email your thoughts about the most impactful moments of history. So thanks to Wendy and Zach. And Thank you. We are Thank signing you.